So we're continuing this morning with the Kingdom of God series. Uh, as you know, we kind of started it over. So this will be the last of the messages that we've already done. Um, we're actually on chapter 3, Major Biblical Themes, and chapter 3, E, Two People Groups. If you turn over and look at the back, you'll see the 15 chapters. And each of these could be as little as two or three weeks. Uh, we spent only one week on chapter 1, three weeks on chapter 2. We're going to end up at 12 weeks on chapter 3, major biblical three themes. And if you look at the, the, uh, su the subtitles on the back of your outline, those are the ones we have not covered yet that we will be covering. So in weeks to come, we're going to look at creation as a major biblical theme, dominion, covenant, kingdom, restoration, and the fact that there are enemies, and we're going to look at Christ as the major theme of all Scripture. Now, all of this is because I thought uh, chapter 5 is really an important uh, chapter in understanding this thing of the kingdom of God being a major theme through all Scripture. We're going to kind of do a survey of all the federal heads in Scripture and all the covenants and, uh, and that sort of thing. And I thought... Uh, with this background of major biblical themes, we'd be able to get more out of chapter 5 as we go. So, um, and uh, we're also chapter 4, an introduction to biblical imagery, which we will get into um, probably in about eight weeks. Um, that is... Uh, that is also kind of going to be helpful to lay a foundation for us to understand our survey of the covenant history of the Old Testament, or as they're better called, the Hebrew Scriptures. So we looked at chapter 1, the primacy of the kingdom. Chapter 2, we define the kingdom in 12 statements over three messages. And now we're in chapter 3, we've covered the plenary infallibility of Scripture, God's eternal decree. Uh uh, we defined the, the eight major aspects of covenants, and we looked at uh, covenant theology as opposed to to uh, dispensational theology, which tends to look at the Bible as one uh, common theme from a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. So today we're going to look at the fact that uh, from God always knew and always intended part of his eternal decree, part of what he's doing in terms of bringing the kingdom of God— is there would be two people groups in the world. There is the kingdoms of this world, and, and uh, there is the city of this world, and there is the city of God or the kingdom of God. And uh, so as we uh, look at that, we're going to look at that uh, today as a major theme of Scripture, and we're going to start by looking at Adam and Eve. Now, Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, and uh, really Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of Adam and Eve, uh, are probably some of the most taught-on uh, subjects uh, in many circles, and me most of you have uh, thought on them. Hopefully you know that, that all the major themes of Scripture, all the streams of thought, if, to use a metaphor, have their fountainhead in the, uh, in the peaks of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. They, they all begin there and, and develop from there. So, I'm not going to cover chapter 3 maybe as thoroughly as I would, but just I'm really just wanting to point out a couple of things that pertain directly to this idea of two people groups. So uh, we're going to look a little bit at the fall 
of Adam and Eve, and we're not going to read the scriptures. Hopefully you've read them many times in Genesis 3. So when the serpent, uh, who is, of course, a, for, a, a type or uh, foreshadowing uh, an image of, of Lucifer, of Satan, of, of you know, the head of the, the satanic opposition against God, when he uh, speaks to Eve, and he, sa- he begins by speaking doubt about the word of God. And he says, indeed hath God said, and um, what is hard for modern people to see is that doubting God's word is, is done by and inevitably means you're replacing it with your word. Okay, so to not trust in God is to trust ultimately in yourself. It's the ultimate form of idolatry. It's to say, my reason, Protagoras of Abdera, Greek philosopher in the 5th century BC, who preceded Socrates and so forth, said, man is the measure of all things. And that's in, in essence saying, indeed has God said, because you're substituting your law word and your truth word and your uh, ideas of origins and teleology and ontology and, and pers- what it, we're here for and and all these kind of things, you're substituting you for God. So uh, doubt is always a leap of faith. Uh, God's word is speaking to you. If you'll let it, Jesus said, if anyone is willing to do my will, he'll know the teaching that it's from God. Doubt always comes from a wanting not to believe God's word in order to enthrone self. Okay, it's funny that when you when you minister to some people, you can see sometimes they're outwardly deferential, or some or not, but you can often see that they are just spinning out of anything you would say to them to substitute their own perspective. Because they are yet unbroken and prideful and, and uh, are substituting their perspective. They're taking a leap of faith in themselves instead of hum- being humble enough to trust God. So uh, the servant follows the indeed God hath God said with God knows that in the day you eat from it, you'll, that your eyes will be open and you'll be like God determining for yourself good from evil. So the two key points there we've already hit on, the one is that you'll be determining from yourself, but the other key point is that he undermines trust in God's character. You see, one of the things that we kind of mess up today, uh, some people would call this biblio-idolatry or something, but you, we, we forget that God's word comes out of the person and nature and attributes of God himself. The written word, Jesus, precedes the, I mean, the living word, Jesus, precedes the written word. And um, therefore, everything that God says has to be interpreted with the backdrop of the attributes of God uh, as, as being that which brought it forth. The mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills God's heart. And scripture is not just an academic exercise, but, uh, you know, like you don't get together with your wife and, 
and just talk about merely abstract uh, intellectual things all the time. You want to know the essence of the, of the other person. And the essence of God, the heart of God, the ways of God, the law of God, all the truths of God come out of the character of God. And ultimately, Satan is taken in the form of the serpent is going one step beyond, indeed, hath God said this particular word, and doubting the very character and essence of God himself. And that, that's uh, very important to understand. So mistrust in God comes out of man's the heart of, of pride. When someone cannot receive either the counsel of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, or those authorities that God raises up by the Holy Spirit through the process of the church and so forth, when, God, uh, uh, when a child can't receive their parents, when people in, in the church can't receive the elders of the church or whatever, ultimately it's, it's, a, it's a trust in themselves. It's pride. And pride, of course, is the handmaiden or the... the the left hand and the right hand, or whatever you want to say, the hand and glove of, of rebellion. So uh, what Satan is doing is he's doubting God's character, intentions, and eternal decree. Now, those who are, are brought into relationship with God or reconciled to God, those who receive redemption, it is always by grace working through faith, Ephesians 2.8. It was when Adam and Eve, who were who were granted repentance, that was the whole point of God uh, providing a, a, an animal skin. That and there's no there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, and God foreshadows the, the the slain of His Son and covers their iniquity and grants them reconciliation. Uh, in, and uh, even though he cut them off from from the tree of life and from the garden and so forth. But he reconciles them to themselves by grace. They didn't deserve it. It was his choice and his mercy alone. And that, but they still had to to go come back to putting faith in him. Their, the grace of God brought them back to putting faith in him. And true faith always brings forth faithfulness, the character of God. I was uh, listened twice to a uh, a teaching by a preacher named Tony Evans, who's a famous guy. And uh, in uh, just in the last couple of days, I I watched this teaching on television twice, and uh, he was actually teaching on biblical tithing, and he's, he he basically made the point that anyone who who buys into the perspective that tithing is something for the Old Testament and the law and so forth. It's, it has nothing to do with their actually believing that perspective. It always has to do with their not trusting in God and their putting self first. He, he basically uh, made a conclusive case going all the way back to Melchizedek and Abraham Payne ties to Melchizedek and, and uh, the New Testament saying that that in Christ we pay tithes through the because he's of the priesthood of Melchizedek and, and that's of course in Hebrews and so forth. And he said, uh, even if God had never given his law, uh, tithing is a, is a eternal concept. It's an Old and a New Testament concept. It's spoken of clearly in both uh 
in both coven in both the new and the old covenant but we don't want to believe it <laughs> and it gets down to because we actually are substituting ourselves. it's an idolatry we want our perspective to be above god's perspective and that pertains to god's teachings about everything marriage and reconciliation uh, many a person has a lot of reasons in their mind why they don't follow Matthew 6 and Matthew 18 and get reconciled to their brother or sister and, and get their issues out and and so forth. Many a person has all kinds of spins for that, but none of them have to do with, with true relationship with God. So uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, the... Uh, it gave birth to the inevitability that there would be two people groups in the earth because all of the descendants of Adam and Eve inherit sin and are born in darkness and are born in spiritual death. But God is offering to be reconciled to God and be reunited as part of his family and part of his original purposes to, to create a family in the earth that would be born of one regal head and would obey his law and, and manifest his glory and carry his spirit and bring about his eternal decree and, and willingly be subjects of his kingdom. Uh, God has been offering that since he offered it to Adam and Eve by grace through faith. Now, there had to be an atonement for sin, and so those who were born again, those who could write Psalm 51, like, of course, David wrote it, but those who can pray Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me and restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Uh, but re, you know, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways. I'll, I'll become your ambassador, your minister of reconciliation. All and anyone who could say that, and and before the coming of Christ was saying it by the same faith, ultimately in the character of God, and 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 in the Word of God that comes out of the nature of God. And his promise that he repeated over and over and gave more and more specifics to that started in what's called the Proto-Evangelium, uh, Genesis 3.15, that he would put enmity between the serpent and the woman's seed, and, and the serpent would bruise the seed of the woman on the heel, and, and the, the seed of the woman would crush him on the head, and so forth. And God, God began to promise a reconciliation and atonement through, his, through the seed, uh, which is Christ. And ultimately, everyone who was saved in the Old Testament was never saved by trying to do the law. There's the erroneous idea that antinomians and dispensationalists have today that Old Testament people were saved by doing the law. And if you've ever tried to do the law for one hour of your in and of your own strength, apart from the grace of God, you know that you can't be righteous for a millisecond that uh, Paul makes it clear, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So though Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. All the faithful of the Old Testament, beginning with Adam and Eve, following to, to uh, Abel, who we're about to talk about, and Seth, 
we're, we're saved by faith in the nature of God and the promises of God regarding his Christ and the fulfillment of his seed bringing us atonement and reconciliation. So there are those who that is granted to by grace and those who it is not granted to by grace. And there are those who choose to, by the grace of God, uh, Jesus chooses them. Uh, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And he makes you willing to choose him. And so you choose him uh, and follow him. And you substitute faith in you with faith in him. That's the essence of salvation. Uh, and that, was, that has always been God's means of salvation from Adam to whoever is going to be the last person uh, on this earth at the second coming of Christ. So hopefully we have that. So right from right from the beginning, there's the possibility of two people groups in the earth. Then Adam and Eve have sons and daughters. Uh, of course, Genesis uh, 4, the end of the chapter, brings out that they have, uh, well, Genesis 4 brings out that they had Seth, Genesis 5, that they had many sons and daughters. And... Uh, but Genesis 4, 3 through 10, or, or the first half, a little bit more than that of, of Genesis 4, focuses on two of their sons, their first sons, Cain and Abel. And uh, we're going to go ahead and read uh, this, because out of this begins the, begins the two people groups in the earth. It's the birth, or the Genesis. That's why it's called Genesis, of the two people groups. Um, so... Um, in Genesis 4, 3 through 10, so it says, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And, uh, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, for offerings, but for Cain and his offerings he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desires for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Uh, Cain told Abel, uh, his brother, to come out in the fields with him. Uh, then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Ultimate sarcastic blame shifting. I'm, I'm not responsible. <laughs> Answer, and uh, he said, "What, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground." Um, put your finger uh, or turn to uh, J James chapter one with me. But I'm going to read us a verse from Matthew 23 first. Should have put some markers in these so I could get there quicker. Matthew 23, 35 says, uh, this is in Jesus' whole uh, Mount Olivet discourse, which if you want to understand that, uh, read one of our intermediate books called An Eschatology of Victory by J. Marcellus Kick. Kick. But he, Jesus says, so that upon you may fall all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So... Uh, Abel is actually called a prophet in the New Testament. And uh, let's look in Luke. Um, 
11, 51. And he says, uh, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and so forth. Now, um, go to James 1. And we'll just touch on for a minute the anatomy of sin. James 1, uh, 1 uh, 13, let no one say when I am tempted that I'm being tempted for God by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one, this applies to Cain and it's applied to sin ever since. This applied to Adam and Eve. To each one is tempted when he or she is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Again, so lust gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. Now, some have said that, you know, Cain's offering was not acceptable because it's the fruit of the ground, and therefore it represents, uh, you know, the ground that was cursed and man's works and this kind of thing. Uh, you can't discount that offer. Uh, again, and Abel, of course, would have been taught by Adam and Eve that God slew an animal to they had how they had tried to cover their own sin by plants, and that uh, God had slain an animal, probably possibly a lamb, uh, foreshadowing Christ, the Passover lamb, and the Passover of Exodus twelve. It doesn't give us that, but definitely God had to slay an, an animal in order to give them the skins. And, uh, and he would have been therefore taught by his parents that relationship to God starts with reconciliation to God by the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And that is, that is probably a good interpretation, but it has to go further than that. Because, uh, you know, true righteousness is not just a matter of liturgical righteousness or institutional righteousness or doing the ordinances right, but it's a matter of the heart. And the Bible makes it clear in all kinds of places, the first fruits offering, the offerings in Leviticus and so forth, even even uh, even the uh, the supper that we have is is both blood and bread. And so the Bible uh the Bible uh, accepts all kinds of grain offerings and plant offerings all through the Bible. So even and the, the blood had to be applied with a plant, hyssop, and so forth. So I doubt that it's only that, but I think it has more to do with who Cain was and who Abel was. Abel, uh, for one reason or another, his sacrifices were pleasing to God and acceptable to God which was a matter of his heart and his relationship with God and bringing them in faith and trust and obedience. Um, it's often been said, you know, many people serve God and many people can be found in the house of God out of the wrong motives. So just because a, a Cain is offering sacrifice to God does not necessarily indicate anything good about his heart toward God. Remember the story of the prodigal son, the elder brother served faithfully in the father's house for all the wrong reasons. And because he wanted to manipulate God and have a sense of that God uh, of entitlement that God owed him. He had he had 
no care for being in tune with the Father's heart. And uh, I've actually watched some of you guys progress as we've walked together out of that kind of place in your heart toward God, you know, where you were Christian or religious and so forth, but you didn't know the Lord or the heart of God or, or care, care about intimacy with him or, uh, or any of that kind of thing. And uh, that is a wonderful thing to, to have God take us on that journey. None of us start out with the right motives, right? Uh, I, I don't know anyone who has. Grace begins to change all that right? So, you know, I just want to bring out that, that Cain's uh, problem is much deeper than what he brought as an offering. It has to do with the whole self-centeredness of who he was, and he was really kind of doing the religious, um, I can't shake off the knowledge that God exists, so I'm going to do my minimum whatever to to appease God and and we believe me you struggle with that and I struggle with that more than you know and um, so I, I don't know how I can open that up more any more clearly than that I, I I feel like I haven't done it as clear as I'd like to but I need to press on I hope hopefully you'll think on that and pray on that um, Cain is kind of the elder. It's interesting because he is the elder brother, and he's the uh, the elder brother in the prod in the prodigal son parable. Um, Cain is uh, not really interested in intimacy or relationship with God. He's not interested in obedience. He's interested in in uh, using God to further his causes. Now, um, Hebrews. Uh, um, 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Hebrews 12.24 says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, and of the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. There are three ways that, that Jesus' blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. And this is something you've heard before, but you really kind of need to get to the point where you could have this memorized. First of all, Abel shed his blood involuntarily. His brother deceived him and, and snuck up on him kind of thing. They, you know, got him out in the field and, and caught him by surprise. Christ said, no one takes my life from me but I lay it down freely. He came to offer his blood. Okay, so uh, th and that's the first way that the blood of Jesus speaks better than the blood of Abel. And Abel is a type and foreshadowing of Christ by the shedding of his blood. Um, Abel's blood cried for vengeance from the ground. God comes to confront Cain and he tells him sin is crouching at your door. And so God is basically telling Cain the anatomy of sin that we talked about in James 1. He's saying lust is conceived and it gives forth to sin and sin gives forth death. Sin is crouching at your door, Cain, and its desire is to, to destroy you. And you've got to conquer it. And the only way you can conquer it is to humble yourself and, and, and uh, come by grace that I might change your heart. So Abel's blood cries for vengeance, 
in Jesus' blood, I, I, I actually hope someday we'll have the uh, stations of the cross around our, you know, there's actually 12 little spots where the candles and there's uh, the Protestant version of the stations of the cross is 12 and the Catholic version is 14 because the Catholic have two extra biblical ones. Um, in any case, um, when Jesus cry, tells the daughters of Jerusalem, don't, don't weep for me, but weep for yourself, I find that kind of an amazing, amazing thing that, I mean, if you consider what he'd been through up to that point and what he's still facing, that his concern was for them. And ultimately on the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And his blood is still crying out for forgiveness. All through the New Testament, it says that beginning in Jerusalem, uh, Jesus' name would be proclaimed for the remission or forgiveness of sins to all the nations. It's, that is still happening. Jesus is still echoing through the ages. First John says that he always lives to make intercession for us. That's amazing. Uh, of course, Abel's blood was shed on the ground, and Christ's blood is, is sprinkled on our hearts, and it's sprinkled before the mercy seat of God. Uh, it's a mystery because, of course, outwardly it looked as if Christ's blood was also sprinkled on the ground, but it's sprinkled as an offering before the throne of God. It's the, it's the mercy seat offering. And it, uh, when Christ's blood washes your heart, um, you re it, it's when the forgiveness of sins happens. Now, uh, so Cain becomes the federal head of the people of this world. He, record, he, he symbolizes self-salvation. Uh, he uh, becomes the father of our threefold enmities uh, that, uh, we're, you know, that we're at enmity with ourselves, God, and, uh, and uh, each other. Um, he becomes the federal head of our threefold enemies. There, there is the world system, those who are born of Cain, and those are, who are of... Uh, not redeem those who are continuing their sin uh, and uh, so forth. Now, um, of course, uh, he becomes the, the uh, servant of Satan and his demons, and he becomes the servant of his own sin and nature and his own flesh. So he becomes the federal head of what St. Augustine called the city of, the, of this world uh, or the kingdom of this world. So, um, Abel, uh, of course, died as a prophet. And so, um, in Genesis 4, 25 through 26, toward the end of the chapter, it says that Adam had relations with his wife, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To, to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, and then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, um, the, the name for Seth uh, actually means a replacement. And uh, so um, what God, you know, uh, quite possibly uh, in, in a theoretical sense, the seed, uh, at least Adam and Eve were expecting that the promised seed wasn't going to be in the line of Seth. Uh, and I can actually 
imagine that the serpent, uh, Satan, actually rejoiced at the first murder and the death of sin. You know, Satan, Jesus calls him in John 8, a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He's the father of murder and he's the father of lies, John 8. And I imagine Satan actually, because he knows uh, God's eternal decree and he knows the scriptures on a certain level, but he doesn't know them rightly, uh, part of why, why he misuses them is uh, he's deceived. And uh, so uh, I can imagine that he rejoiced when Seth died, thinking, I've killed the seed. I've, I've stopped the eternal decree, I've, I've so forth. But God's purposes are immutable. God's eternal decree, God is sovereign. He has all foreknowledge. He's never caught by surprise. He always intended that Abel would be a prophet and a a foreshadowing of Christ. But God intended to give Adam and Eve another seed named Seth. And Seth raised up and he became the father of those who call upon and seek the Lord. A lot of people uh, believe that they're... um, you know, that that Abraham was uh, some idol-worshiping pagan and there wasn't any godly seed in the ground. But but if you follow the, the generations uh, that are listed in Genesis 5 uh, to Noah, Noah uh, is the 10th generation, and um, Methuselah is his grandfather and so forth. Enosh, uh, Enoch, walk, Enoch, not Enosh, uh, Enosh is the third generation. Uh, Enoch is the seventh generation in the generation, the number of perfection. And uh, Enoch walked with God, and God, he was not, for God took him, Genesis says. But Hebrews brings out that God translated him, much like he did with Elijah. And uh, so there was always a godly people in the earth. And in fact, uh, some people believe that the book of Job. Uh, predates Exodus as to when it happens. But if you remember, Satan goes before God and he says, have you considered how wicked the earth is? Maybe it was before the time of Noah. There are actually a lot of people who believe it was before the time of Noah. And uh, the, the world is full of corruption and wickedness and all men have turned their hearts against you. And God responds and said, have you considered my servant Job? So, um, you know, there has always been a godly seed in the earth. Now, um, not all those who were born genetically out of that line received the faith that Abraham received, received the faith that Abel exercised, that, that Adam exercised, uh, that, that uh, Enoch exercised and so forth, Methuselah. But the Bible makes out, by the way, and says that Methuselah and Lamech, or Lamech, I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, there's, of course, there's a Lamech who's a descendant of Cain, uh, talked about in Genesis 5, who uh, is a murderer also. And and um, we should probably talk about him a little bit because he's, he's actually... Uh, generationally progressed to, to more wicked to, than his than his forefather. And interesting, God, uh, when Cain, if you can actually see when God confronts him, you can see this is a very important thing that if you if you don't 
think about this regularly and often, you you need to. You can't make any progress in God without thinking about this regularly and often. Because Cain has remorse. And there's always a difference in the Bible between repentance and remorse. So Cain is Cain remorse is always concerned about the consequences. And so Cain whines before God and says, the consequences are too heavy for me. And interestingly, God even gives Cain a certain level of grace. As our Lord Jesus even said that God causes his reign to reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. And the, the earth is full of the mercies of God, even among those who don't know him, never, nor give thanks to him, uh, nor, nor even realize that, that they're the recipients of his mercy. But God grants Cain a mark so that those who saw the mark would understand from the mark not to kill him. But Lamech takes it further and says, if Cain's blood is to be avenged seven times, may my blood be avenged 77 times. And notice it's the exact opposite of what Jesus taught us. Shall I forgive my brother seven times? Jesus said, no, up to 77 times. What, what Lamech is asking for is anyone who kills me, anyone who brings vengeance upon me for my murder, uh, let them be avenged 77 times. Let them be punished. Let, let retribution come on them. He's saying the exact opposite of what Christ said. When they killed him, when they pulled, ripped his beard out, when they made, mocked him, when they whipped him, when they crucified him, he still taught us to forgive our brother up to 70 times seven, some translations say, or some other translations say 77 times. So the, the ungodly line progresses in the earth. Not everyone who was born of that line chose, just, just as not everyone who's born to a godly Christian family grows up to be a godly Christian. And uh, so um, by the time of Noah, there's, there's, uh, the, the earth has become so corrupt and so wicked that Noah, God looks down on Noah and his family, who are of the seed of Seth, as being the only righteous ones who are still walking in the faith of Abel and Enoch and Enosh and Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech and so forth. Uh, who the Bible brings out, by the way, that Methuselah and Lamech were also preachers of righteousness. So, um, so in Genesis 10 and 11, the whole process, or Genesis, I'm sorry, 6 through 9, the whole process starts again, and God uh, makes Noah the new federal head of a people, and, and um, um, we go from there. And then out of his line, of course, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the Shemites uh, become the car carriers of, of um, the things of God in the earth. And, uh, and Abraham is, is, comes from that line. Now, from the time of Abel, uh, it, we'll start with when, after they start again in Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Abraham is a descendant of Shem. That's why you... Being anti-Jewish is still called anti-Semitic or anti-Semitic, and uh, so Abraham um, is told by God, uh, "Follow me." God makes covenant with him, and he says, "In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed." 
later, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes of Jacob, and the 12 tribes of Jacob go, you know, to Egypt through Joseph. And, and you know, we're fast forwarding here. We'll, we'll go in through this in much more detail in chapter 5. But when we get to, to God making covenant with the Israelites in, in, the, in the wilderness in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, he says, If you indeed obey my voice, you'll be my special treasure in all the earth, for all the world is mine. And it becomes the responsibility of the covenant people of God to mediate the presence of God and to represent God to a blind world who, who has all kind of false ideas in their mind and their heart about who God is, to to, uh, to live our lives in such a way that we give an accurate demonstration of God. The whole point of Christian marriage is that the, the relationship between the man and the woman is supposed to tell the world what the relationship of Christ and his church is. Right? Um, and the relationship of raising kids is supposed to tell the world around us what it means to be part of the family of God. Uh, and so forth. So, uh, well, I'm really having to, to rush through this. So, um, I guess uh, what I, I'm going to just uh, like to do is give us just some biblical metaphors for the people of light and the people of darkness. I'm going to have to skip all this part about the uh, the fact that uh, Satan and 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 his kingdom, uh, in the biblical view, Satan and his kingdom are embodied. In, this, in the states, that is the political governments of, of antiquity. So Pharaoh is a type of Satan and Egypt is a type of the world system. And so are most of the kingdoms. All, uh, fallen man always believes you can save people by government control and government planned economies and fascism and, and Nazism and the, our current kind of, you know, uh, our current uh, blend of a little bit of democracy left in the, in, but a mostly socialistic, uh, increasingly socialistic country. All of that has always been uh, from ancient times. That's what all the ancient civilizations were. You know, it was actually the progress of Christianity that came out of the Reformation that birthed the whole concept of constitutionally limited governments because mistrusting man's heart and uh, free market economies and, uh, and, all, and the whole concepts of freedom and constitutional libertarianism and so forth came, came totally out of biblical Reformation thinking, the whole idea that that we can politically ally ourselves with one political party or another or something like that is just, is, is the thinking of, of this world and, and, uh, of the, the whole antichrist system thereof. I wish I could develop that more for you and, and, uh, give you the history thereof. I could probably add another chapter, uh, or another week to the chapters and, and develop that, but I don't think I will. Uh, just going to quickly give us some metaphors for the people of God. The people of God look for these kind of metaphors through the Bible because it has always been God's intention to have a people for his own possession born of one federal head, and we are born of Christ. God's people, the entrance into the kingdom is to be reborn by the Spirit of God through, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and there are two people groups in the world, and there always have been, and the people of darkness always persecute and oppose the people of light. 
I hope you know that, uh, you know, a saying in the second and third century was that the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. From, from the beginning, the church was opposed both by the Jewish Pharisees and, and Sadducees and Herodians and so forth, and by the Roman government. And tens of thousands of Christians died. Perhaps you don't know, uh, perhaps you do, but in the last 110 years, there's been more martyrs for Christ than all the centuries of the church put, put together. Most people are aware of that, I think. And that our brothers and sisters are being persecuted and dying for Christ in many lands. And in lots of ways, some of the groundwork for that coming here has been laid in, in federal court systems and so forth. And I don't think that we can expect that we'll have uh, the liberty to worship God freely like we do now uh, forever. That's something that we, you have to fight and protect. Um, here are some metaphors for the people of God. The people of light, the lampstand. A lampstand is where you put lots of individual candles to magnify the, uh, the strength of the individual light by making it part of a team of lights. That's what a church is in the Bible. Revelation 1.20, the tw seven lampstands are the seven church churches. The, the redeemed, the, the people that are redeemed, the, the ransomed of the Lord, the redeemed of the Lord, the Lord's special treasure, his peculiar people. We are called God's vineyard, God's bride. We are the woman or the mother uh, who's giving birth to a male child who's destined to rule the nations. Uh, we're the city of God. We're a city set on a hill. We're Jerusalem, Zion, Mount Zion, mountain of the Lord, the house of God, the, tab the tabernacle, the planning of the Lord, the children of Israel, the people of Jacob, the people of the God of Abraham. We're uh, referred to in a metaphor as, as the moon. Uh, when the moon turns to blood and so forth, that's not about 10 times and all that. Um, we're the, we're the ecclesia, the called out assembly, that is the church, the chosen ones, the holding dwelling places of the most high, the vessels of mercy. We're a city not forsaken. We're uh, chosen ones. We're God's nation, God's holy nation, God's inheritance. Uh, we're the people for his own possession. We're the olive tree, the fig tree, and God's field in 1 Corinthians 13, fig tree, uh, uh, Romans, olive tree, Romans 9, 10, and 11, and so forth. And, and, of course, that's all going back to the Old Testament. Some metaphors for the people of darkness, real quick, uh, or the people of Satan. Galatians 1, 4 talks about how God uh, rescued us uh, from th this present age of darkness. Uh, the people of darkness, the, the people of the captivity, the enslaved, the idol worshipers, the, the world system, the world... The, evil, uh, the sons of the evil one, uh, the, the people of Satan, the people of enmity, the forsaken, the, the people who are not a people, uh, the, the vessels of wrath that God, uh, interestingly, God meticulously develops the people of darkness as much as he develops the people of light. They're just not aware of it, nor does the Bible focus on it, but, but there's, a, there's a perp, an important contrast there. Their, their purpose is to destroy us. Our purpose is to bring them forgiveness, reconciliation, and to love them anyhow. And uh, the Egypt, uh, Tyre, Babylon, Sodom, and the kingdoms of this world. So um, if you get a hold of that, 
you'll get much more out of your Bible. The Bible mixes metaphors and uses, we're going to look at that in chapter four, which will start in about eight weeks. I'm going to do about seven more weeks on chapter three. But um, when you get to chapter four, you'll, uh, when we look at biblical imagery, though, though, there's a great example there of biblical imagery, what I just left. Those all are ways of referring to the people of the light or the people of God and the people of, of the enemy or the people of this world. Amen.